Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. Last week I talked about the burning bush in Moses. You can go, this is online so you can go see it. And the importance of turning aside and how that phrase is used and sprinkled across scripture. And how I didn't really see until this, this reading this time through that the whole Exodus 3 encounter, and, and see, you'll be familiar with this. That's the, if, even if you're sort of new to faith, uh, these phrases roll around. That's the burning bush passes. That's where Moses encounters God. God speaks from a burning bush and calls his name and everything. And so, uh, but it's a conversation about worship. Moses is, um, is being called. God's calling them out and saying, bring them out to worship me because two things God asks. He says to Moses, he says to God, who are you? And then he says two verses later, who am I? And God answers the question and essentially, doesn't essentially say, he says it. He says, who am I? And then he says, who are you? And God says, his answer is, bring them to the mountain to worship me. And the statement is this, beloved, and what we're trying to burn on the hearts of our children, not to engage in emotional song singing, that may or may not be worship, but to engage in worship because it is only living and doing a life of worship. And one of the things that Pastor Rhea talked about was revisiting Romans 12, that bringing our body as a living, holy sacrifice is a reasonable service of worship. And that if we live a life of worship, beloved, all of us need to hear this, but I'm praying that the students that we're just immersing our students in worship, because it is only in a life and expression of worship Now, everybody gets that worship is bigger than Sunday morning. Worship is not just songs. Worship is the life we live towards God. A thousand times here, probably you've heard that worship is worth shaping. It comes from the old English word that means that, we earth Skype, to shape the worth. We make choices every day what will inform or shape our worth. For the child of God, we have chosen to put a holy God at the center and say, Father, you alone have the power to shape and inform my worth by your word. That's a life of worship. And here's the declaration. For those of us who will engage in a life of worship, it is the surest path to discover who he is and who I am. When we discover who am the I am, we discover who I am, and that is all about worship. So we, we looked at that last week, and, and when, he engages, when he engages Moses in this conversation about worship, it really is the first dialogue or engagement about worship. If you, by the way, if you treat the, the, the Bible timeline as predictable, and I don't know that I am as stringent about that as some, but there's 2,000 years from Eden to Moses, from Moses to the cross, there's 2,000 years, and there's 2,000 years from the cross till now. And so many who predict the return of Jesus Christ will use that sort of motif to say, 2,000 to this shift, 2,000 to that shift, 2,000 to this shift, now 2,000 more, and the Lord's coming any moment. And he may very well, okay? But the, the, the Bible is seen sort of in that timeline landscape. So it's been 2,000 years since the worship environment of the Garden of Eden has been walked away from. 
And it hit me in, in yesterday, uh, Sunday afternoon after I went home and I was reflecting and just thanking God. And I thought, Job, the book of Job and Psalm says that the angels see what God does here on the earth. First Peter, Peter writes and says the angels watch what's going on as God interacts with the redeemed and they look longingly into things that they themselves haven't even experienced. That is redemption. That's an amazing thing. So they watch. So I don't know where, but out of the, it hit me that when God created, he told the angels, I'm, I'm going there to earth. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to start with a garden. What's that going to happen? It's going to be a place of absolute worth and worship where I'm going to create mankind, put them in the garden, and they're going to sort of branch out from the garden and subdue the rest of the earth. But it crashed and burned. So 2,000 years later, God announces, I'm going back down, going to have another worship conversation. That guy named Moses, actually, I'm going to have it with all my people one more time. And the angels say, well, you got another garden? No. All I have is a bush. But watch what I can do with one bush. Amen. And it just hit me as I reflected on that. See, because a bush... A dried up old shriveled bush in the middle of a nameless place. We talked about that in the wilderness. You know, you wouldn't look to that. Moses hadn't walked past that bush 50 times and say, I know there's a blessing going to come from you. It was a bush, a wilderness bush. Anybody know what a wilderness bush looks like? It is not green, growing, fruitful. It's, it's just surviving. And I just rejoiced in my own personal prayer time through the work and saying, Father, I am thankful that you show up as a force of blessing in the things I've walked right by and didn't think they had the capacity to carry anything, but when the presence of the Lord shows up in the middle of just a bush, and what I like even more about that story is that conversation goes on with Moses, and just a few verses later, he says, I'm sending you, and you'll be the mouthpiece, and he says, but, 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 but God, I, I stutter. He doesn't say it like that, but that was the problem. He had a speech impediment. And he says, that's okay. I can use, what's that in your hand? And he says, a stick, a staff, a stick. He says, I'll use the stick. Moses says back, what on earth can you do with a stick? Bro, did you just see what I did with a bush? <laughs> it's not in scripture, it's Tom's version. You're not privy to that, and that's tragic that you're not. But I wanna tell you this morning, <laughs> When you look around your life and say, hey, you know, there's just, I don't know, there's nothing that God can do anything great with. I hope you have a Moses encounter. Just bring me a stick. What, that thing over there? Bring me anything. Bring me anything. And just watch what I can do. Okay, I got to stop. Well, there's one more part to that, actually. Because you see, the ground of worship was first the garden, then it was a bush. And I said last week, um... It's so funny because Galatians says, cursed is he who hangs on a tree, and he describes, there's two or three places in scripture where it describes the crucifixion of Christ using the poetic nature of a tree. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And so the, the third time of worship, the final worship encounter, the son announces to the angels, I'm going there to recover worship in finality. It can never be lost again. Great. You have a bar garden? No. No. Do you have a bush? No. I've got a tree. I've got a tree. 
I, I love that little poetry how, and forever worship has been secured through that tree or through the wood of the cross on which Jesus died. You know, and back to that faithfulness motif. It's because of that blood that we can count on that. Now, I'm just going to push the pause button there, and I, I want to share something with you, hopefully real quickly from Ephesians, because as I was sitting in, um, oh, by the way, I, I, I won't take time to sing it to you, but this week out of that little prayer time, it says, Moses, this is Moses' worship song, and I really believe, by the way, what I'm praying about is um, another musical stage production that's just built on worship encounters throughout Scripture alone. I don't know what it's going to be called yet, but it's coming. So uh, um, with just original songs, and I'm, I'm thinking this will be one of them. This is Moses' song, In the Wilderness Alone, No One Around. Where no one goes and no one knows, so I can't be found. Everybody knows he's of a failure. But then a voice calls my name from holy ground, says, I am here, come near, come now. And, I'm, and somewhere in between, we're going we're gonna to write about the woman caught in the act of adultery or the woman at the well or somebody. But the final verse of it is going to be the ultimate flip, says, Lord, we draw near to you while you may be found, be enthroned on our praise. May your grace abound. Our hearts cry out with this holy sound, please come here, come near, come now. We have that hope that we can do that in the name of Jesus. I just, I just love that. My heart's overflowing with that. You guys really ought to go home and reflect on the stuff the preacher says. It's great. I'm telling you, just bless my own self all week long. All right. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter one, actually, let's start with numbers chapter six. Uh, we sing songs written from it. Did you sing the blessing? Did we, we didn't ever get to that? Okay. I thought that was going to happen. And then again, okay. It was supposed to, it's Pastor Rhea's fault, right? Okay, great. The, um, the, uh, uh, this is, I love the song, the recent ones from it. We've sung another one that's a lot older, but it, in Numbers chapter six, it's God instructing Aaron, the high priest to bless his people. And by the way, um, we talked about something in staff this week. In Exodus chapter 32 is the rep story of the golden calf, okay? Moses is on the mountain with God receiving instructions about the tabernacle or the epicenter of worship for the people of God. In that same chapter, three chapters later in 35, the very first part of the description that he begins to give away is what the high priest will wear. Well, Aaron is the high priest. God told him on the mountain he would be the high priest. <laughs> the problem is in Exodus 32, while God was talking to Moses on the mountain, looking over his shoulder, he says, by the way, uh, the people have lost their mind and Aaron the high priest has made a golden calf and the scripture alleges that there was just debaucherous worship conceivably just naked dancing before the golden calf. You get that? And Aaron's leading the way. I want you to know that God pronounces him the will-be high priest at the very moment he's looking over Moses' shoulder, watching him do perhaps the pinnacle of stupidity in his whole life that Aaron will ever do, and that is dance naked before a golden calf. And God's saying, and by the way, here's the clothes for Aaron 
And brother, if you had any idea what he was doing at this moment, you can't believe that I would be actually saying he's going to be the high priest because he's lost his mind. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Here's the good news. Watch this. On the next five minutes, right after you do your next really stupid thing, remember, register it now. Throw up your hands. Say, God, I thank you for Aaron. Can you give a brother a break one more time? Please forget. Isn't that good news that God doesn't assign us based on the most stupid thing we've ever done? I don't know about you, but that just blessed my heart this week. That was free. It's not in my notes. But he was the guy giving the blessing. And so he says this. Can we have that, uh, Gabe, please? Numbers chapter 6. I believe it starts at verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, here we go, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift his countenance and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And here it comes, so shall they invoke. Yes, those are the verses. In case you didn't know where they were, that's where they are, okay? So they shall invoke my name upon the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. (laughs) I love having fun here on Sunday morning. I don't know about you. Um, Listen, everybody say, invoke. Invoke. Years ago, and we've studied this here together, probably 35 years ago, because I can remember at the inception of the church we planted, that I studied that, and I wrote a song from this passage of Scripture. And I discovered the word invoke meant to mark, smear, or paint. And it was a funny notion, listen closely, a funny notion because just at about that same time or just before, the technology of laser tagging had been and had come to bear in the military warfare machine. And that is, typically they would have a small unit on the ground, a special ops unit of some sort, and they would have a device that was a laser device, and they had to be within a certain distance of a target, and they would push the button, they would infrared, shoot an infrared line to the target, and they would say target painted or target tagged. Now, somewhere out 500, 1,000 miles away from a submarine or a land-based, now they use drones, but a uh, land-based missile would be launched and it would fly and not strike within 100 meters or 1,000 meters if they laser tagged the front window of something or a doorway or an opening to a cave, it would fly right in that, right there and not miss the mark. God gives Aaron, the priest, the first conceptualization of laser tagging. You see, as we fast forward, Matthew 16 says, make binding on earth what has been made binding in heaven. That's what the church is to do. So first off, I want to say we're about to pray for our children, and we're going to paint the target. We're going to mark them for blessing. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Now I want us, if we could, to jump ahead to Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to look at verse 18. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. These are so good words. Hope riches, glory, inheritance, and what is the surpassing greatness? Everybody say surpassing greatness. 
The word surpassing there is from the word we get hyperbole. Matter of fact, it looks very similar in the Greek language. Now, a hyperbole is what we would otherwise know in, in, in a little bit less enlightened language. Hyperbole is exaggeration. Now, hyperbole can be sort of a literary form. For instance, Paul uses hyperbole. He says things like, I pray in the spirit. Matter of fact, I pray in tongues more than you all. He did not mean that he kept record and said, I pray 20 more words than anybody else. It was hyperbole. He was just saying, I pray in my mind. I pray in the spirit. I bless with my mind. I bless in the spirit. I sing with my mind. I sing with the spirit. And it's in that context where he says, I'm all in on this. I don't push that aside at all. See, but that's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. But in our lives, you know, we don't tend to grant people that sort of academic latitude. Oh, you know, old Bobby, he just exaggerates about everything. Poor, stupid guy. Because also we know that an exaggeration is really sort of mm, your entry-level lie. And it's that word that's used here. When he said these words, everybody say surpassing greatness. One more time, surpassing greatness. I love this. Paul uses this word in association with four things. I I won't take you to all the scriptures and read them, but it has to do with power, grace, surpassing power, surpassing grace, surpassing knowledge, and surpassing love. In fact, he says that love surpasses the surpassed knowledge. So the good news is this. That whenever you don't know what you need to do, the good news is you are held in the arms of a Savior from which, the love of a Savior from which Paul says we cannot be separated. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So God is exaggerating. But here's the good news because when it says, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power, how many know God can't exaggerate? And it goes back to the opening language in verses three and four, because when God speaks, I love what one theologian says, because we're going to look at that word blessing. We're about to bless one more time. And I love what uh, uh, um, um, a Greek uh, scholar wrote, his name is Spiros Zotiates. And I don't know how long ago, 30 plus years ago, I read this because in that opening verses, he said, the, um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with, in the heavenly places, his spiritual blessing uh, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I love that. The word bless is the word from which we get eulogy. It looks a lot like it. Eulogetos. And a eulogy means to speak well concerning. But here's what Spiros Zodiades, right? He says it's used three ways. It's used man to man. That means, John, if I was to eulogize you while you're living, I would be saying nice things about you. By the way, don't wait. Don't wait to eulogize until those loved ones are gone. Walk up. Matter of fact, just practice every day a little piece of a eulogy. I'm going to just say something good and bless you in Jesus' name. That, that's what that word, we bless, means to speak well concerning. Now, but it also is not man to man. It's also used God to man. And that's why, for instance, in the King James language, when that word shows up, they, in the King James, they typically wouldn't translate it, blessed be, like the New American Standard. Blessed be the God and Father. King James says, praise be unto God, the Father of our Lord and Savior. Why? Because when I speak well about him, I'm praising him. So King James, I love it. They just cut to chase on him. 
But Spiros Odiati said one more thing. He says, never forget. He says, the third dimension, he says, watch, there's man to man, man to God, but then there's God to man. And he says, never forget that eulogetos has this little word right in the logos, means word, means to speak. And he says, never forget, he says, when I speak, it's nice. But when God speaks, creative life and force is released. Watch. When God says, let there be light in darkness, he's not exaggerating. When God said, let there be the sun and the moon or stellar, where there was no stellar body, he wasn't exaggerating. He says, I think there's a moon. Where is it? Right there. And it's there. See, God can't exaggerate. So, so watch the sort of combination of things we, we read. He says, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward? And just this morning, uh, uh, I was speaking with um, Pastor Kevin Wallace on the phone, and uh, we were talking about another part of this passage. And he says, hey, have you ever looked at the word toward? And I said, well, no. And he says, it words, it, uh, he says, it actually means to aim. And I said, oh, buddy, you just absolutely finished my sermon today. He says, I said, really? And so, of course, I, I fact-checked him. I didn't trust him alone because he's a preacher and he exaggerates. Um, that'll come to you in a minute. This is the no exaggeration sermon here today. His power toward us who believe. Now, you remember that blessing them was marked them as a target for my blessing? God says, I've aimed, but watch what happens when he says this. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And this is an important language. Verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, beloved, I talk about this so much, about why it's so important that Jesus Christ died, his blood was shed, and he took his seat. I'm going to come back to that in the next few weeks because it's so important that in the Old Testament, there was a mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And the Bible says that if the picture a box here, you know, a box about that wide, that tall, uh, made of acacia wood, covered in gold, on the four corners, there's seraphim. You know, those beings around the throne crying out, holy, 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 and they're facing inward, and inward is the mercy seat, but it said once a year, God would be enthroned above the mercy seat. He didn't sit on it. The mercy seat was empty. And here's, here's uh, back in the fall of last year, we, we were studying that again along the book of Revelation, because in Revelation chapter 5, John was weeping and he says, I saw in the hand of the Father on the throne his will, but it couldn't be opened. There was no one who could open the will of God so that the will of God might find the people of God. And I began to weep. And one of the elders said, stop weeping. He says, turn, look. He says, I looked and saw a lamb freshly slain. Watch this. Step in between the seraphim, and the throne of God. Why? Let's go back to the Ark of the Covenant. Follow me. On earth, the symbol of the tabernacle in the heavenlies and the temple, the Bible tells us that, on earth, one more time, they had the Ark of the Covenant, the seraphim on the end, the mercy seat was empty, it would be sprinkled with blood, and God above it. He said, this is a picture of the heavenlies. Can I tell you what happened? that when the lamb arrived fresh from the cross, blood once and for all, finally 
sacrifice. The book of Hebrews tears it all to pieces and says, not only was he the priest, but he was the sacrifice and there's never going to be another sacrifice. His blood was the final blood. Why? Because when he stepped in, in the heavenlies in between the book of Hebrews says, and he sat down at the right of the father, the right hand of the father. Beloved, can I tell you who, where he sat down on? He sat down on heaven's mercy seat. Why? Watch, because in the Old Testament, if you approach holy with an empty mercy seat, it results in nothing but judgment. But in the New Testament, hallelujah, the throne of judgment gets a name change because God, the Son, is in the mercy seat. And so watch the language of Hebrews chapter 4. Now I want you to boldly approach a throne of judgment. It does not say that. He said it's a throne of grace. Watch. So now I turn and I start to approach the throne of grace and it's scripture says in this order, well, you receive mercy and then grace. Here's the good news. In the Old Testament, as you approach the throne of a holy God, it was nothing but judgment because there was an empty mercy seat. But in the New Testament, after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and Ephesians says, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, we can boldly approach that, and it is no longer a throne of judgment, because with an occupied mercy seat, that throne of judgment now becomes a throne of grace. Hallelujah. Does anybody get that? When we begin to see that, oh my goodness. Hmm. Hallelujah. Okay. Enough said. Which, I'm going to finish from verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And I mean, he just names everything. He's exaggerating. Maybe. As I told you, God doesn't exaggerate. He's saying far above all rule, all power, all dominion, all fill in the blank. And he says anything that can be named... I love that, including a heart defect the doctors found. Come on, my sister. Okay, all right, let's keep going. Now from here, we've got to go back and read verses three and four in the same chapter. And it's amazing, the enlightenment, because earlier this week as I was sitting in the youth service, I saw something, and I have taught these two verses of scripture safely 500 times referencing because they go hand in hand with the mission of the church. And here's what I mean. The mission of the church, Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. But he, said, he says, now to the church, he said, you'll make binding on earth what has been binding in the heavens. Loose on earth shall have been loosed in the heavens and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. You're the church. Well, what does that mean? What are we making binding in the heavens? I'm glad you asked. Verses 3 and 4 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just as, everybody says just as. Just as he chose us in him. You know, this whole aiming thing, it got knocked out of kilter at the Garden of Eden. <laughs> but it was recovered. Here's what I mean. I had never in all of this notice just as. Just as. And really, it's so critical, just as he chose us in him. If you read verses 18 through 21, you find out that he talks, see he mentions in verse three, blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the blessing now. 
now since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now we have blessing from him, we have become a target that can't be broken. But he says this, and it's almost as if he pauses and says, before the foundation of the world, before the Garden of Eden, before I created man, before a serpent slithered in and sought to disrupt the potential of my blessing on the people I created, I spoke. And I spoke, there was no question, no challenge, no threat. There was no presence of sin to resist it. Then in chapter three, verse five of Genesis, the, the adversary slithers in and he challenges the word of God that God would speak and they accept another opinion above God's opinion and all of a sudden that target got knocked, that, 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 that sight line got knocked out of kilter by sin. But the announcement, beloved, that he makes in Ephesians chapter one, he says, I need to explain something to you. Before there was a garden or Adam and Eve and sin or any of that, I just spoke and it was uncontested, unresisted. I could just aim, speak, and it happened, but then sin. But he says, I want to tell you something now. He says, based upon what I'm about to do, this is in accordance, I'm reading to you from scripture, with the working of my strength and my might, which I brought about in Christ Jesus. Now, and he, go, everybody getting this? He said, watch, now I'm jumping back and forth between three and 18, hang with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, at, who has and who is blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies because of Christ Jesus. We could just stop right there, put a period and say amen. But he says, I want you to understand what's been recovered by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am now once again speaking with the absence of restriction because of the power of the cross of Christ. Let's see. Oh, just as I spoke before the foundation of the world and said, let there be light and there was light because nothing could resist it. Let there be earth, there was, let there be, let there be, let there be, and it was unresisted. I want you to know that sin rose up and tried to resist it, but now by the power of the blood of my son that was slain, I'm speaking again. Hebrews said, I'm um, he said, I've spoken in these last times and the final opinion is my son. I don't know if we're getting this, but well, Pastor, why are you wanting to do this? Because today, I'm wanting to pray for our kids, and no, I'm not putting one of these on their heads. It was a stupid thing I thought the last minute. That oil. You know what oil of anointing is used for in the Old Testament? Prophets, priests, kings, and things. We said that as a little mnemonic every now and then when I teach on anointing. That, Prophets, priests, kings, and then articles of tabernacle worship. I know it's hard to take me serious with this. Get over it. Come on. They, once they were anointed, they would be endued with God's power unto his purpose. Today, we're praying over our children. And I want it registered beyond what they can even articulate. Articulate that as we bless them and send them evermore into a world that is challenging everything they believe, a culture that's rising like never before to pointedly refute the message of the cross 
and to pointedly say, if you believe that, then you're this kind of person and throw you into a broad category of being a hater, an idiot, ignorant, less enlightened or whatever. Today, we're gonna mark our students because they're gonna face stuff. And what they need to know is at any moment in their life that we've marked them. By the way, I'm gonna add this to baby dedication too. And here's the good news. Don't pray for somebody to anoint you and bless you. God will make you miserable when you go out to do your stupid things. Because you're marked. He said, too late, you're marked, I can find you. I want our kids to know that in any moment of need, desperation, when culture or voices are maybe rising against them, there will never be a place where they will go where God says, I have never lost sight, literally a sight line, and there's no place you will be where I cannot launch a missile of blessing from heaven and strike your heart and empower you and give you the confidence to know that I have a surpassing grace, a surpassing knowledge, a surpassing love, and a surpassing power that's at work within you. You are my target. You're the center of the bullseye, and I won't lose track of you. Is anybody getting what I'm talking about? I want our kids to know they've been marked. And by the way, I won't chase this, but it's the very thing that I pick up on in Revelation 13. We, people love to hear about the mark of the beast. And, and I have actually had people leave the church for me saying what I'm about to say. And it's just like this. What if, when you read that passage of scripture in Revelation 13, a false anything, an anti-anything, is to redirect worship away from God to something else. And that passage tells you that. And here's what I like to tell people, that while believers sit around waiting for an embedded chip, a barcoded or, or nanotechnology hidden in a vaccine as the mark of the beast. And, and don't, don't get upset, I just shook my head at that. And the reason I shook my head in that is not because there's not the possibility of that happening, but beloved, please hear me, I wanna say this again. Even if unwittingly you should take a shot from a vaccine that has some sort of nanotechnology to know where you go, what you spend, who you are and whatever, do you think that that has the power to upend the blood of Jesus Christ? No, no. Okay, enough about that. But where I end up in saying, the mark that he's talking about is the consciousness of the world. And John, a good Jewish boy, is just repeating the language that he learned in the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter six. Mark them on their hand and on their forehead with my word. What does that mean? Their actions and their thoughts. And here's the tragedy for me. And I'm gonna pick up on my favorite one on the top of the list because it's number one, unforgiveness. Because you can wait for a barcode or a chip, but when your economy of thinking is more influenced by the world than marked by the word, yes. it's already there. You're waiting for a barcode and a chip, and I've made an unfortunate tongue-in-cheek joke that we probably have a bunch of people sitting here this morning with the mark of the beast. Because your economy of thinking is until that person does what's right, I won't let them go and I'll never be made whole. And that is a violation of worship because there's not a person or a violator that has the capacity to make you whole, only God does. And as long as you're living by that consciousness, you're living by the mark of the world instead of the mark of the word. 
So you can wait for the barcode and sit there mad, bitter, miserable, and unforgiving. Guess what? Enough said. I want our students marked. I want them to know they have a church praying for them. What's the fresh fuel of impassioning for me was Isaiah 8, verses 12 through 18, but verse 18, where where, um, Isaiah says, here am I and the children. Go back and listen to that teaching from five or six weeks ago. Here am I and the children. God's looking for any generation that will step up and say, I'm here to find holy. I want our kids to have encounters where holy happens. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.